Chapter 31 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 31 Trinidad and Martin Voss Islands. At daybreak on the 8th of December, we were becalmed under the lee of the island, about three miles from the beach upon which we could hear the sea break furiously. Trinidad it certainly appeared a wild and uninviting spot a precipitous mass of barren volcanic rock with lofty, inaccessible summits, the whole surface being studded with sharp, needle-like peaks. We got out sweeps, and with their aid slowly approached the southwest corner of the island. I recognized many of the landmarks that previous navigators had described, the huge monument, the sugar loaf, and others, and on opening the southwest bay, I perceived a considerable issue of water leaping down a rugged, barren ravine and a series of cascades into the sea. This, I soon concluded, must be the one described in the directory, and I determined to come to an anchor off it. After having got our chain and anchor up from the hold, I sent the mate out in the boat to take soundings and choose a suitable anchorage. He returned at midday and reported that he had found bottom, coral and broken shells, in 18 fathoms, at about half a mile from the shore. Further in, he said, there were many dangerous rocks. It was now a dead calm, so we towed the vessel toward the bay with our boat. As there was a slight current against us, this was pretty hard work under the rays of a vertical sun. At 2.30 p.m., we came to an anchor off the Cascade, the southwest point of the island bearing southeast, and Bird Island north-northwest. Bird Island, so named by us, is a rock of considerable size peopled by thousands of seabirds that lies off the north point of Southwest Bay. Glad we were to hear our chains rattle out once more, even though in an open roadstead in mid-ocean off a small desert island, after our weary twenty-four days of battling with a rainy monsoon. Having made all snug, I decided to dine first and then search for a landing place in the boat. It did not look much like landing at all from our deck or masthead, for the great smooth ocean swell in which the falcon now rose and fell so gently broke heavily on the coral-fringed shore. There seemed to be one unbroken line of great breakers even on this the lee side of the island, and the roar of them reverberated among the rocky ravines like loud thunder. That did not sound encouraging to the explorers. We enjoyed a very varied fish dinner, for the cook had not been idle with his lines. I was aware that the sea round any desert isle, rarely visited by man and far distant from any main, always teemed with fish, but I had no idea that any portion of the ocean ever swarmed with life to such a marvelous extent as is the case around this islet. There was a species of black pigfish, as the Italians call them, that surrounded us in vast shoals so dense that the clear water presented an unbroken, inky appearance in every direction for a time. There was another species of pigfish, too, that was beautifully striped with broad bands of violet. There were fish of every color of the rainbow, of every size and shape. Too much fish, Mr. Arniti, exclaimed the cook who gazed with an amazement almost mixed with fear at this more-than-realization of his very wildest piscatorial dreams. He rubbed his eyes and cried, Is it not a vision? But I will try. 
and he forthwith cast his lines and no sooner did the hook touch the water than hundreds of fish were at it and the chief indeed the only skill required by the fisherman was to haul the line quickly back before the secured prey was devoured by his cannibal brethren there were eight distinct varieties of fish and all edible crowding the waters around our hull and none were timid and shy for what knew they the insidious hooks that lay buried in the tempting morsels that these strange monsters that had visited their island for the first time were so kindly throwing to them but now sharks perceiving the unwonted commotion and large crowd of smaller fry that was collected around us came up to discover what was going on at one time there were quite thirty of these ugly monsters swimming round us the other fish dispersed as they approached and only the very greedy ones remained the sharks spoilt our fishing somewhat during our stay off trinidad but not much there was enough for all what we chiefly objected to was their habit of biting some fine fish off our hooks before we could get him on board but mr shark got himself caught several times in consequence of this unneighborly practice and even before our dinner this day we had hooked and slain four fair-sized sea lawyers after dinner i pulled off in the boat with the mate and panisa to discover a landing place taking a musket and some fishing lines with me on approaching the shore we found it run steep down so that the sea only broke when it reached it there not being two or three lines of breakers as is the case on gently shelving coasts but though we rowed along the line of the surf for some distance, we could nowhere perceive any spot on which the boat could be beached without running a great risk, indeed certainty would be the proper word, of getting her stove in. There was but a narrow verge of beach between the cliffs and the breakers, and this was composed of sharp coral rocks and huge boulders fallen from the mountains. There were no sandy or pebbly beaches. We could examine the shore very close, for the sea broke always so exactly in the same spot that we were enabled to keep the boat on the summit of a wave just before it was about to break and look down on the beach below us. We rode under the monument, which is a four-sided column of basaltic formation, quite 800 feet high, I should say, separated from the cliff by a wide opening. We passed between Bird Island and the mainland and pulled on for an hour to the northward but everywhere the sea broke furiously on an iron-bound coast. We observed that little rivulets fell in cascades down every defile in the mountains, so of fresh water there was evidently an abundance on the island. We could perceive no vegetation on the beach or on the lower slopes of the mountains, which were either precipitous or steep inclines of loose rocks and stones of every shape and size but we noticed that there were plateaus and great domes at the summit of these hills, which were covered with a bright green grass or other herb, and, in places, forests of some sort of tree. Amazed as we had been at the quantity of fish that swarmed in these waters, we were still more so when we perceived the myriads of sea-fowl of various species that covered this island. Seen at a distance, many of the cliffs appeared white, as if of chalk, with a multitude of the snowy plumaged birds that were perched on their honeycomb surface. Bold as had been the fish, these birds were more so. Hundreds of kittiwakes and a certain great fluffy horse-voiced fowl, whose true name I am unacquainted with, came off their cliffs to inspect us, 
They flocked about our boat and followed us as we coasted along, their number ever increasing. They kept up a continual chatter, no doubt discussing what we strange creatures could be, whether we were fish or birds, a new species of shark or albatross. They approached so near to us that we could knock them down with stretchers and even catch them with our hands as they flew around our heads. But we saw no signs of any other life on the island, and commenced to entertain some doubts as to the existence of the pigs and goats. I think that, after our experience with the fish and birds, we had half expected to see these quadrupeds flock down to the beach in battalions to welcome us to Trinidad. We returned on board, considerably disheartened at sunset, but we were hungry and did justice to the cook's dinner of rock cod and pigfish. Failing land pigs, that ardent disciple of Walton had caught too mucho fishy porky, to use his own words. The next day was fine, but a fresh southeast wind had raised a considerable sea outside. This caused a higher swell than usual to run into southwest bay, so that the surf on the beach was more dangerous than it had been on the previous day. After breakfast, I rode off with the mate and Panisa in the boat, with the intention of again attempting to effect a landing. I made for a spot that I had observed on the previous day, and which seemed to me to be the best, if not the only, locality adapted for a boat landing place. This was a promontory of coral formation that ran out into the sea some fifteen yards or more beyond the breakers. It was situated in Southwest Bay, a short distance to the northward of the Cascade. It was, indeed, a natural pier, for its sides ran perpendicularly down into deep water, and its summit was but six feet or so above the level of the sea. We got alongside of this, and the swell that passed by was so regular, though high, that it would have been easy to have approached close to, and when the boat was on the top of a wave, and so almost on a level with the summit of this coral jetty, for me to have leapt on shore without any danger, for the rough coral was not slippery. But the mate was a timid boatman, and Panissa a more timid one. So, after several attempts, I had to abandon this method of landing, for as soon as a wave approached, these fellows would get frightened and push off so far from the rock that leaping on it was quite out of the question. I made them roll along the coast far to the northward, and I observed that this portion of the island was far the most precipitous and inhospitable. At last we came to a cove, on whose beach the sea broke dangerously at long intervals only, for two precipitous capes that bounded it sheltered it considerably. We observed also that in one portion of the cove there were no sharp rocks to oppose our landing. The shore just there, which seemed to be of coral formation, was flat and terminated seawards in a steep step. Here landing seemed to be feasible. Our method was as follows. We dropped our anchor some fifteen yards from the beach, and then, choosing our opportunity, slacked out cable and backed stern on towards the shore. I stood up in the stern, ready to leap onto the beach as soon as the boat was near enough, leaving it to the mate to watch the sea and choose a proper time between the breakers. As soon as I leapt on to the land, he was to haul out again. My provisions and rifle were to be passed to me by a line, so it was arranged. But this is what occurred. I was standing up in the stern in readiness, with my face turned toward the beach, 
when I heard a cry, and the next moment felt a mass of water strike me on the back, nearly pushing me overboard. The clumsy mate had allowed a sea to break over our bows. It nearly filled our boat up. She quivered, uncertain whether to turn turtle or not. The mate seemed to be paralyzed by the accident, and not till I poked an oar into his stomach to wake him up had he the sense to obey my orders and haul away at the line so as to get beyond the limit of the breakers before the next wave was on us. By balancing the boat carefully, we managed to keep her upright and set to work to bail out as rapidly as possible. It was a near shave and a nice mess we should have been in had we lost our boat, for she certainly would have been stove in had she been rolled over on these hard rocks by the powerful waves. It would not have been very prudent to have swum back to the Falcon through a sea swarming with sharks, and I had left no one on board who would have been capable of navigating her to the Brazilian coast to purchase a boat with which to take us off. I saw I had committed a very imprudent act, so, determined when I next attempted a landing to leave the mate on board the yacht, with definite instructions as to what to do in case of an accident occurring to the party on shore. We returned on board in time for dinner. The mate and Panissa were more than discouraged by their morning's adventure. They suggested that we had better sail at once for Bahia, that landing on Trinidad was impossible, the attempting it a serious risk to life. Besides, they urged, we have been close to it. It is all a heap of stones. If we did land, we should discover nothing worth the discovering. These arguments were just, but I did not like being beaten by Trinidad, and after sailing all this way, I thought that we had hardly tried enough yet, and I should not give in. The cook was strongly of my opinion and volunteered to accompany me on a voyage of discovery after dinner. So we got under way once more at 3 p.m., taking with us a rifle, a bottle of rum, some biscuit, a tin of sardines, some tobacco, and, of course, fishing lines. I arranged a series of signals by means of which I could communicate from the shore to the mate in case we lost the boat, one signal being in order to bring the yacht nearer to the shore so that we could swim out to her, another an order to sail to Bahia, purchase a boat, and return for us, this latter being in view of our finding abundant food on the island and funking the sharks. This afternoon I examined the coast much more closely than I had done before, and knew that if landing was feasible, land we now should, for my companion was a thoroughly good boatman and quite fearless to boot. Paulo Ciarlo was ever ready for any wild adventure, and was a great contrast to the timid mate and cowardly Panissa. Just to the northward of the monument, there is a promontory of precipitous rocks, honeycombed and full of birds, on which the sea breaks with fury. On the other side of this cape, and sheltered by it, is a bay hemmed in by barren mountains, steep and seemingly inaccessible from the sea. There was little surf here, so we determined to land. To beach the boat, we saw it would be impossible, for the shore was encumbered with huge boulders of rock fallen from above. So, we dropped our anchor far outside the breakers in about 20 feet of water, jumped overboard, there were no sharks so near the breakers, and swam to the shore. We soon found ourselves standing on dry land once again and rejoiced exceedingly. The next question was to get our stores on shore also. Now, as the breakers were higher than they seemed to be from the boat, 
and the back undertow difficult to contend against, even for a strong swimmer, we simplified matters by carrying a line from the stern of the boat to the shore. We hauled it taut and made it fast to an elevated rock. We found it quite easy to travel along this hand over hand through the water with our baggage tied on to our heads. In two journeys, we had brought all on shore. We put our property under a hollow rock, took a tot of rum each to counteract the dampness of our garments, lit our pipes, and proceeded to look around us. We wished to discover if it were possible to reach the rest of the island from this barren bay. If it were so, I decided to return on board and get some of the crew to land us here again on the morrow. Then they could take the boat away until our exploration was complete, and we signaled for them to return and bring us off. We, of course, dared not leave the boat at anchor in this exposed spot for any time, for a westerly wind might spring up and bring a furious sea into the bay at very short notice. The coast upon which we had landed was certainly an uninviting one, we could find no issue of water anywhere. The two precipitous capes that shut in the bay to the north and south put insurmountable obstacles to our progress in those directions, so we proceeded to scale the mountains to the back to see if we could find an exit to a more fertile region. In four different places in succession, we attacked the mountains and four times were defeated, but not till we had attained a considerable elevation on each occasion. The lower slopes were formed of debris, loose stones of every size that the slightest touch dislodged, so even this portion of the ascent was not unattended with danger. Above these steep inclines of rolling stones was an almost precipitous wall, hundreds of feet in height of basaltic formation, rising in shattered, regular-shaped columns similar to those of the giant's causeway. So many were the inequalities of the surface offered to the climber's foot, that to ascend this would not have seemed an alarming feat to anyone with a good head were he sure of his foothold. But we soon found the mountain to be literally rotten. The columns were broken through at short intervals and crumbled away when one grasped them. There was not one stone that was not loose and ready to topple down. Thus, after struggling up to a much greater height than prudence should have sanctioned, for we had some narrow shaves, we were compelled to give in, weary and disappointed, and confess that we had landed in vain, having fallen on a cove from which there was no escape in any direction, surrounded by impassable cliffs. As we discovered afterwards, this savage spot afforded a good specimen of the nature of the island. Utterly barren mountains rose from a coral beach, mountains that were rotten, and the whole island is so burnt and shaken to pieces by the fires and earthquakes of volcanic action. What struck us as remarkable was that, though in this cove there was no live vegetation of any kind, there were traces of an abundant extinct vegetation. The mountain slopes were thickly covered with dead wood, wood too that had evidently long since been dead. Some of these leafless trunks were prostrate, some still stood up as they had grown, Many had evidently been trees of considerable size, big around than a man's body. They were rotten, brittle, and dry, and made glorious fuel. This wood was close-grained, of a red color, and much twisted. When we afterwards discovered that over the whole of this extensive island, from the beach up to the summit of the highest mountain, 
at the bottom and on the slopes of every now barren ravine on whose loose rolling stones no vegetation could possibly take root these dead trees were strewed as closely as is possible for trees to grow and when we further perceive that they all seem to have died at one and the same time as if plague struck and that no one single live specimen young or old was to be found anywhere our amazement was increased at one time trinidad must have been one magnificent forest presenting to passing vessels a far different appearance to that it now does with its inhospitable and barren crags the descriptions given in the directory allude to these forests therefore whatever catastrophe it may have been that killed off all the vegetation of the island it must have occurred within the memory of man looking at the rotten broken-up condition of the rock and the nature of the soil where there is a soil a loose powder not consolidated like earth but having the appearance of fallen volcanic ash i could not help imagining that some great eruption had brought about all this desolation trinidad is the acknowledged center of a small volcanic patch that lies in this portion of the south atlantic therefore i think this theory a more probable one than that of a long draught a not very likely contingency in this rather rainy region as we could find no fresh water in our cove we saw that there was nothing left for us to pack up our stores once more swim off to our boat and row back to the yacht we felt very disinclined to undergo the exertion of all this it was now dusk and we had been toiling hard rowing or climbing all day under a fiery tropical sun so we were pretty well fagged out our several duckings in our clothes too had assisted not a little to the exhaustion of our energies we should have preferred camping out where we were for the night but without water this was impossible for we were even now parched with thirst i had already packed up my bundle and was preparing to wade out into the breakers with no pleasant sensation when a joyful cry burst from the cook who was prowling about the shore in an inquisitive fashion Awa, senor aquí hay agua i dropped my bundle and hurried up to him he pointed to where drop by drop a crystal fluid was oozing from an overhanging rock to be absorbed by the dry volcanic debris beneath it was but little but it was enough and a quart bottle which we had brought with us filled on being held under the tiny issue in about five minutes with as cool pure water as anyone could desire i tasted it and then said paulo we will sleep here tonight it is good senor he replied eagerly for he was as tired as i was and hence funked the plunge into the strong breakers as much as i did myself we now proceeded to make ourselves comfortable for the night the overhanging rock under which we had placed our guns and stores on landing afforded us an excellent shelter from a drizzling rain which had set in we collected a large quantity of the dead wood and soon had a glorious fire blazing at the mouth of our cavern which quickly dried our sea-drenched garments our dinner was a luxurious one for we had an abundance of biscuit a box of sardines and a bottle of rum besides these we had a few bright speckled sea snakes we had found among the rocks and some fine crabs which when roasted we pronounced to be excellent we both felt thoroughly comfortable and contented as we smoked our pipes by the loud crackling fire after the completion of our meal we were far from being in sole possession of this little cove 
Bare of vegetation though it was, it swarmed with life. The hideous yellow land crabs were very numerous and attracted by the unwanted light marched into our fire all night long to be roasted in hecatombs. But more numerous than even these were the birds. There are several species of seafowl on Trinidad, but this cove was peopled only by a pretty sort of small gull like our kittiwakes. It was now the breeding season. On every stone and stump of wood the female birds were sitting on their eggs. Our presence in no way alarmed them. They permitted us to stroke them, and seemed rather to like our kind attentions. The overhanging rock under which we slept, though not of larger size than is, say, a brewer's dray, must alone have been occupied by one hundred of these gulls, so prodigiously crowded with bird life is this lonely island. Every crevice in the rock had an egg or freshly hatched chicken in it. One mother had a fluffy baby on a ledge within its arm's reach of where I sat by the fire. Once, when the mother was away, I presented this baby with some roasted crab, which the dissipated little creature supped off eagerly. The mama returned before it had finished the delicacy and snatched the unwholesome morsel from its offspring, following up with a shrill and voluble sermon as to the perils of allowing strange beasts to stand one crab suppers. We slept soundly on our beds of stones and coral, though we were frequently disturbed by the claws of the inquisitive land crabs that crawled over us in a most irritating manner throughout the night. At midnight, I was awakened by the much-increased roaring of the waves on the beach. A high sea was evidently running, and the spray of it occasionally dashed into our cavern. So I turned out to have a look at the weather. I was far from reassured by what I saw. The rain was still falling. The clouds above were of a very stormy appearance and were traveling in a southerly direction at a rate that betokened a stiff breeze. Even on this, the lee side of the island, the sea had felt the influence of the wind as its loud roar clearly proved. I knew that as the sea rose, it would break further out, in which case our boat anchored where it was would almost certainly be swamped by the rollers or dashed to pieces on the rocks. The night being dark, I was unable to distinguish it and relieve my anxiety. To lose our boat and be left on this desert gulf, unable to cross the imprisoning mountains to a point opposite to the falcon, whence we might make signals of distress to her, was no pleasant prospect. It would be quite a question whether, even if the mate sailed around the island in search of us, he would be able to distinguish ourselves or our signals from the distance at which he would be bound to keep the vessel. Besides, there was no spare boat on board wherewith to fetch us off if discovered. The collapsible had long since been worn out and thrown away. To stay here for a month or so, living on gulls and crabs, was, for me and the cook, I saw, a now not improbable adventure. However, anything was better than trying to get off to the boat in the dark, tired as we were. So, as nothing could be done till dawn, I piled up some more trees on the fire, lit a pipe, and smoked till I fell asleep again, which was not long. We were awake at daybreak the next morning. Es muy feo, it's very ugly, was the cook's remark, after silently inspecting the ocean that lay before us for a few minutes. Ugly it was, but not so ugly as it might have been, for our boat was still riding safely beyond the breakers, though hidden from us at intervals as it fell into the hollows of the high swell. To reach her, however, 
burdened as we should be, would be a formidable undertaking. On the sharp, slippery coral rocks, offering insecure foothold at the best of times, the surf was dashing furiously. The rock, too, to which we had fixed the stern line from the boat, was now no longer out of reach of the waves, for the tide had risen considerably, so we had not the support of the rope to rely on just where we most needed it, that is, in the shallow water among the breakers. The weather looked very dirty, so that we saw that we ought to hurry back to the falcon without delay. But first we roasted some crabs, and off these, with rum and pipes, breakfasted, a very necessary preliminary, for we had hard and dangerous work before us. Besides which, we were fagged, chilly, and aching in our limbs, the result of our yesterday's adventures. Having lashed some of the stores on my back, including a bottle of rum, a hatchet, and my rifle, I proceeded to make for the end of the rope. As I was clad in a thick pilot suit and heavy sea boots, I found myself to be a very unwieldy mass to guide when I got into the troubled water. I had to watch my time and hold for life on to the sharp coral as a wave approached, allowing it to go over me, a process attended with no few cuts and bruises. After round and considerably knocked about, I at last managed to reach the rope and proceeded to haul myself along it, hand over hand, towards the boat. Breathing between the passing waves, I got on very well for a few yards, and then the water deepened suddenly. I was out of my depth, and I had found that my impedimenta were so heavy that it was quite impossible for me to keep my head above water, and the rope was so slack that my weight at once dragged it under. I shall never forget that journey, and do not wish ever to repeat it. I was traveling underwater. It was a race for life. I hauled myself along the line as fast as my hands would move with the energy of a drowning man. I felt as if I must have gone over a mile and yet no boat. And indeed, the distance was a very long one for a journey of this description. So long was I underwater that the cook, looking on from the shore, thought I had been drowned. But at last I felt the line tighten. My head rose above the water, and there was the boat just in front of me. Purple of visage and gasping, I held on to the stern for a minute, then crawled on board, and without more ado lay down until the results of the semi-suffocation had passed, when a tot of rum from the bottle set me right again. It was now the cook's turn. Not profiting by my example, he too overloaded himself. He passed through the same period of torture, and, after dragging his weary limbs into the boat, vomited a gallon or so of Atlantic Ocean that he had swallowed on his way. After half an hour's rest, we recommenced work. There were still a few things on the shore, so stripping all my clothes off, I jumped into the water and returned back to the beach. Collecting what there was, I hauled myself back again along the line, this time with my head above water, for I carried but a slight burden. Then the cook in his turn had his second ducking, for the line had to be cast off from the rock. On his return, we proceeded to weigh the anchor. Alas, our troubles were not over yet, for strive our utmost it would not come up, having evidently got foul of some rock at the bottom. After dragging our boat stern down to the water's edge in our endeavors, we had to give it up cut our cable as low down as we could, and leave our kedge behind us. We soon reached the yacht, running under our lateen sail before the strong wind. Those on board were much pleased at seeing us again, for they had been rather anxious for our safety. 
End of chapter 31